Welcome to the Asia Chessboard, the podcast that examines geopolitical dynamics in Asia and takes an inside look at the making of grand strategy. I'm Andrew Schwartz at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Mike is joined by Dr. Kath Hicks, Henry Kissinger Chair, Senior Vice President and Director of the International Security Program at CSIS, for a discussion of how gray zone tactics factor into grand strategy in Asia. In unpacking the effect of gray zone tactics on strategy, Mike and Kath begin by defining the parameters of gray zone tactics and the domains in which they are most effective. With these assumptions in mind, what will the knock-on effects of gray zone tactics be on theories of coercion, victory, and defense planning in Asia? What parts of the U.S. government have historically been most effective at adapting to gray zone competition? Mike and Kath further discuss Kath's journey through the Department of Defense and her advice for young women hoping to become defense professionals. Welcome back to the Asia Chessboard. I'm here with my friend and colleague, Kath Hicks, Senior Vice President at CSIS. She leads the International Security Program and has a distinguished career uh, in government um, at uh, the highest levels of policy in the Office of the Secretary of Defense and continues to be called upon from both sides of the aisle to explain defense policy and uh Specifically, one of the topics we'll talk about today, uh, gray zone coercion, which I'll come back to in a moment. But, uh, Kath, I want to start, as we do with many of our guests, by asking you how you got into the national security business. A lot of our listeners would like to grow up to be Catholics. What's your advice? How do you, how do you explain how you got here? Sure. Well, first, thanks, Mike, for, for having me on. Um, how, you know, it's funny. I, I often say that career trajectories can look like a straight line only in retrospect. And so it certainly didn't. It felt like I sort of fell into the things I ended up doing, but they're going to sound a little more self-directed. I grew up in a military family. I graduated college uh, at the time the Berlin Wall was coming down and the Soviet Union was disintegrating. And foreign and security policy were were sort of, I think, in the blood. Um, public service was definitely in the blood in my family. A lot of lot of members of the military in my Na- family. Navy, right? Your, Navy your and yeah. Marine Corps family. Mm-hmm. My, my, my father was in the Navy. Um, and so when I was in graduate school, which I did right out of college in, in national security affairs, public policy with the national security affairs concentration, I applied for what was then called the Presidential Management Internship Program, which is now the Presidential Management Fellows Program. I was accepted into that, and once you get accepted, you look at different parts of the government to work in. And I knew right away that I wanted to try to work in the Office of the Secretary of Defense. I am not of the Kennedy generation, but my my uh, my family is, if you mm-hmm. will, and we, we definitely had that spirit of public service, and I wanted to be part of that best and brightest um, generation that goes into public service. And so I was lucky enough to go into the Office of Secretary of Defense. I started there at the age of 23. Um, I worked there as a career person a decent length of time, about 13 years. I left the career civil service at the senior executive level, went to CSIS actually to uh, try to finish up my dissertation, finished uh, my dissertation really at the end of that time, and really once I was back in the department, because surprisingly to me, I was only out of government for about two and a half years um, before I went back in as a political appointee in the Obama administration. Um, so that's sort of how I got here. I guess my advice has always been to people that they should be focused first and foremost on what makes them happy, what drives them, what their passion is. And as you hopefully can tell, mine was really public service um, and working on issues of substance. And I've been really lucky in my career career, both here at CSIS and in DOD, to be able to do that. 
What was the master's degree in and what was your dissertation on? You were That was MIT, right? My, uh, my PhD yeah. is yeah. MIT, and uh, my dissertation was on civil-military relations generally, and it was on why um, the, the instances and conditions under which civilian leaders in the United States choose military instruments for emerging national security threats um, and under what conditions they mm. choose civilian instruments. Who did you study under at MIT? Uh, I studied under a lot of people. My dissertation committee chair is Charles Stewart. Um, mm. Charles is an Americanist, and um, he was fantastic because my dissertation really brought in quite a bit on the congressional literature of decision-making as well as executive branch decision-making. Um, I also studied uh, foremost with Harvey Sapolsky. He's the one who brought me to MIT. Uh, Harvey's just a he's just a brilliant writer and funny guy and orthogonal thinker and really sort of stretches you in all kinds of ways um, and and obviously worked uh, uh, under Barry Posen and others for my classwork. So I tell people thinking about PhDs that you don't generally do a PhD to get a job in government. No. You do it and you only survive it if you're passionate about the topic, which Absolutely. you obviously were. But did you find it useful when you were in government? Did the reality of government conform with what you'd studied and researched? I found it helpful to have both pieces. I have always liked having the theoretical underpinnings and the sense of the uh, historical case study work that you necessarily do when you're doing uh, political science on international relations. And even the political philosophy piece, uh, I think, is really helpful to have that sort of that core undergirding how you think about the exact context in which you're working. And then for my doctoral work and then how I use my PhD, I think, today, I love having that uh, practitioner skill set because I really think you have to have both in order to understand how U.S. foreign policy gets executed and and how to sort of work the system, if you will, to best effect to, to execute it well. So I worked briefly in the Pentagon. We might have overlapped. I was in the Asia office. Right. But uh, I would not describe it, at least in, in those days, as the friendliest work environment for women. Uh, you've done very, very well, though, uh, within the system. And now you're involved in a number of programs like Smart Women, Smart Power, uh, Women in National Security. Do you think that the environment has changed in the Pentagon? Uh, hopefully, if it has, for the better? And, and what, what needs to change? What's your advice for women going into national security, which is a field that in Increasingly, if you look at Georgetown and Sice, is becoming very balanced in terms of gender, in terms of who's going into this as a career. But you've you've seen it change, sure. hopefully for the better. But what, what do you think? Definitely changed for the better. And uh, I think the part that can seem disheartening is it changes much more slowly over, over a longer period of time than one would hope. Um, when I went into the Pentagon, it was very normal to be the only woman in any given office. You wouldn't even it wouldn't even occur to you. Didn't, you didn't blink at it. It would be you'd be hard pressed if you went inside um, the places where I used to work, the Office of the Secretary of Defense, policy offices in particular, um, to find offices that had only one woman in them. There's there are so many women in the intervening many I won't count the years many years mm-hmm. um, who have joined the ranks. I think the real challenge is the progression at the top is very hard. I uh, have three children. I uh, had all of my children while working in the Defense Department and really had to navigate a lot of issues around um, moving to the management and leadership level while having children. There's a lot of sacrifice that goes into that for men and women because the culture of the Pentagon fundamentally is a um, all-in culture. 
and the national security world because of the uh, requirements to be able to view secure documents makes it very challenging to take your work home or work a day from right. home, things of that sort. So you do give up a lot on work-life balance in order to succeed in the national security sector. Um, so that's sort of been my experience. Uh, the good news story, in addition to the number of women that I think now work at the Pentagon on the civilian side, is that it's a very supportive environment. Women are very much looking out for each other. That's bipartisan. Uh, they're, they're Republican women and Democratic women who've worked in the national security sector are very supportive of one another. And that's, um, that's really valuable to have that community. Uh, the other thing I would just add is that until women uh, succeed in the operational part of the military and the uniform services at the four-star level in numbers as a cohort, it will be very challenging for women to advance um, fundamentally in the national security field as civilians. So I always think it's important for civilian women to remember that their success is really dependent on moving the ball forward for women in the military. Did your PhD arm you for this better uh, in terms of how people thought about you in the building? Or um, I had a PhD when I was in uh, the five-sided building. I'm not sure every general and admiral on the other side of the table was so impressed. But No. Yeah. I mean, I think it, it didn't. It didn't matter. It doesn't matter in the Pentagon mm -hmm. um, in terms of the title. I'd say what matters is what you got from the experience. Are you a better analyst? Are you right. a better thinker? Um, are you a better leader? How, how does your PhD inform you in that way? I'll tell you one sort of anecdote um, to show you how much it didn't help me in terms of military viewpoint. When I was doing the murder board, for, I, I had a Senate-confirmed position. And before you go into your confirmation hearing, typically you'll have a murder board session where you're run through the ringer as a tr dry run to see how you'll do. And the person who led my murder board said to me at the end of it, you know, you're fundamentally an academic. Senators hate academics. Um, and I thought that was a really, you know, I think it was, I'm not really an academic, I'm really a practitioner, but I thought it was a, um, a really interesting turn on the way in which academics think of themselves versus how Washington uh, yeah. thinks of academics. And so this is where I think having both sides of it, the practitioner side and the academic side, becomes so yeah. important in order to be legitimate um, in the eyes of different audiences. And I'll just say one more thing on that, which is with the military. The PhD absolutely doesn't matter. What matters is have you been in there and, and dug in the trenches with them and and respected the operational art that they bring, and have you demanded essentially their same kind of level of respect for what you can bring um, from the fields of, in my case, international relations and the understanding of how Washington works. So you clearly, to segue to uh, gray zone coercion, uh, one of your signature research themes here at CSIS the last few years, you've clearly brought that same rigor and analytical uh, framing to a problem that's vexed uh, the Pentagon and U.S. allies for the last at least seven, eight years, which is how in the case of Russia and China in particular, but also North Korea and other um, adversaries, uh, you know, the other guys on the other side of the chessboard are using um, this not war, not peace, gray zone in the middle approach to shift the balance of power and influence and, and essentially in a revisionist move to undermine American leadership in key regions of the world. The, the most important, I would argue, is probably Asia. And that was your first study on gray zone coercion. But why don't you start off by telling people how you define gray zone coercion before we get into the specifics? 
Sure. And and let me just say, for some people, the term they prefer is hybrid. For some, it's um, irregular warfare, malign influence, gray zone. And I um, very much believe we should not get hung up too hung up on the terms or the precise definition, because we, we like to get, often in Washington, we like to get into the debates over definitions and terms, and then we kind of miss the forest for the trees. But we do, um, we did settle upon using for our studies... Uh, um, gray zone as our preferred term, um, and and the gist of our definition is essentially that there's this there's this range of tactics that are being undertaken that fit somewhere between routine statecraft and direct conflict, um, and the desire is to seek relative gain. Um, from one side or the other, and that this is a means by which uh, states can do that. As you mentioned, uh, we focused particularly in our work on China, Russia, Iran, and North Korea. Obviously, non-state actors have long been in the gray zone space, um, terrorists being notable in that. Um, and then we also looked across a very broad tool set, these tactics, as I referenced. So we looked at information operations and disinformation. We looked at political and economic coercion, space and cyber operations, and then uh, proxy support state support to proxies or provocation by state-controlled forces, so something like the Chinese maritime militia and what our basic conclusion is is that all four of those uh, adv- state adversaries we were thinking of are executing at one level or another gray zone tactics across all seven of the uh, issue sets that we looked at. So the work you did on the Asia team at CSIS helped on the Asia piece of yes. this focused in the study, which is available online at CSIS.org. I think the most comprehensive, uh, at least unclassified study of uh, gray zone uh, efforts by China in the maritime uh, domain. We focused almost entirely on ways and means um, and didn't get too caught up in the ends because, you know, defining intent is is hard even for the most fluent Mandarin-speaking China experts. But you must have some assumptions about intentions. Do you think that the Chinese intention is revisionism, is hegemony? How do you define it um, looking at now for several years the gray zone efforts in the maritime domain? Yeah, I think in the case of China, I do think it is revisionism at its, at its broadest level. Um, and this, again, the tactics are really in service to that end, and the Chinese tactics aren't simply in the gray zone. Soft, traditional, if you will, soft power is certainly being executed. And then there's a bit of a fuzzy line, if you will, into what moves from soft power into something that looks more like a gray zone um, tactic. And then, of course, we always face this prospect of the potentiality for escalation into a a conventional um, or even... um, non-kinetic but military-to-military interaction. So I think China, what what China's been able to do uh, is identify the seams that the United States faces in terms of orchestrating its its sources of power, its alliance system. Um, And they're moving quite fluidly across a lot of this soft power to gray zone with the potentiality always out there of trying to get the United States to recognize that they're, you know, the U.S. should not want to escalate up to the conventional realm. And in so doing, they are rewriting the map, literally, um, in Asia. So this is um, what, in planning parlance, was once called phase zero. So we're not at war, it's peacetime. It's happening right now. But... Um, but by expanding the area that it can deny to U.S. forces, 
or coerce smaller states. Um, China is effectively changing how we would fight wars at the high end, the phase two, three, four part of the planning. Do you think gray zone coercion has gotten to the point in the Western Pacific where we need to rethink our traditional uh, war fighting strategies for Taiwan, for Japan, Korean Peninsula, or are we not quite there yet? Well, I, first, I just want to say I don't, I can't say I know what the thinking is today inside the Pentagon. So hopefully they're already and in PACOM, into mm-hmm. PACOM. Hopefully they are always rewriting, rethinking, innovating on the plans. Um, but the answer is yes. I mean, the the way in which gray zone tactics are executed. Um, does shift how we have to think about escalation ladders. It shifts the breadth of tools we need to be thinking about integrating with regard to either maintaining the status quo, if you will, or um, advancing U.S. interests in the face of those tactics. One challenge I think the U.S. faces is, particularly in the military, we really like clean categories, right? So This is where the phases actually come in, where, where traditionally we've had this phase zero to phase five approach. The Department of Defense actually has moved away from yeah. that um, phasing approach, but it still likes structure. And there's reasons for that, right, uh, that have to do with the laws of war and the role of the military. But the reality is these tactics, we should anticipate the Chinese and you know and other theaters, the Russians, et cetera, would use in conflict. So it's not just a matter of the road to war, if you will, but mm-hmm. even in conflict, we should assume, for example, the Chinese will use disinformation. For example, the Chinese, of course, will use cyber attacks, including likely against non-military targets, not possibly even uh, uh, targets here in the United States, space operations, maritime militias, uh, Coast Guard. I could go on. But I think the, the problem we have right now in DOD that hasn't really shifted is this, they're still fighting through in their own minds what they're calling competition versus conflict, Um, meaning competition is gray zone in their Mm -hmm. parlance, conflict obviously being war, the old phase three. There There is a spectrum. I'm not saying it's all one thing, but the reality is these tactics are available and are smart, frankly, for the Chinese to pull on in conflict. So we better get a grasp of how we're going to deal with them, if you will, in regular, ordinary time, because they're going to come get us in conflict as well if we're not on top of it. Um, My impression was that the Obama administration struggled with this problem. It was not, um, you tell me if I'm wrong, but in the transition, uh, it was not at the top of the national security problem set, for the White House at least. And with the building up of the artificial islands and um, and then other acts by North Korea, such as the sinking of the Chunan, uh, the Pentagon was seized with this gray zone problem. But I didn't te- detect the same uh, concern at the White House or the State Department. It, it, there, it seemed to me there was not, it took really towards the end of the administration until there was a real consensus that this was a problem. Is that a fair characterization, do you think? I do. I think that's a very fair characterization. I think in DOD, because the way in which it was manifesting earliest for us was in the maritime, so therefore obviously it was yeah. a DOD relevant issue set, there was a very strong desire to be able to demonstrate um, freedom of navigation, uh, freedom of the seas through our navigation, freedom of navigation operations. And my impression from the DOD side is that the White House, the decision was that this was not uh, important enough of a principle, if you will, to outweigh other desired gains with the Chinese. Now, wasn't my job to be inside their heads, so I can understand that they had to make different prioritization approaches. But from the DOD side, it certainly looked like 
Um, it was inviting the Chinese to continue to make arguments that such operations would be seen as escalatory, if you will, rather than the opposite, right? Which is that freedom of navigation should be seen as uh, operations should be seen as routine um, and non-escalatory. So I do. I think we got ourselves in quite a bad position uh, by the time I was here. I left DoD in 2013. Uh, by the time I was over here, um, you started to see obviously a very significant uptick in. Chinese cyber operations, some of which we had seen even when I was back at DOD. That's the one place where President Obama, maybe the first place is a better mm. way to put it, came out relatively strongly with Xi. They had some agreement, and there is evidence, as we, we point out in our reports, um, that the Chinese kind of held the line a bit on yeah. IP theft uh, for a while after that. So, you know, it may not have been a, a hugely misguided approach, but the eye was not on the ball of what the Chinese were doing. I think that's indisputable, uh, what the Chinese were doing in the South China Sea. And then you got the militarization of the islands. And this is where, Mike, your great work with the Asian Maritime Transparency Initiative comes in of being able to prove out from the, not from U.S. government, from the mm -hmm. civil society side of CSIS, being able to show that the, as I, as I heard someone put it so well, that the audio and the video tracks weren't weren't lined up where the Chinese were claiming they weren't militarizing. And of course, you were able to show the images that in fact they were. So I think by the time you got to that point, as you point out, the end of the Obama administration, that's when it really started to change and um, accelerated much more so under the Trump administration, particularly with regard to freedom of navigation operations. What's the essence or the core of how you respond to or preempt or anticipate these kinds of gray zone course of activities, focusing on, on, on Maritime Asia in particular. People talk about cost imposition. Uh, is there a theory of deterrence or dissuasion? I mean, how do you counter this? First thing you do is have a, a good story to tell, if you will. You got to have a you have got to have a good offense, right? So this is about building out on U.S. strengths, primarily in Maritime Asia. This means U.S. alliance networks, building out both the combined interoperable capacity militarily, but also building out that strength of the the, the tensile strength to withstand pressure. The diplomatic and economic relations trade would be a great example of that. Where if the U.S. had a strong trade um, pact or approach or set of pacts, what, whatever it is, has a strategy for um, how it's making itself indispensable to allies and partners in the region, that really gives a lot of strength to the U.S. Having a strong narrative is also important, and this is where you've seen um, DOD try to move out on the free and open Indo-Pacific. You know, I look forward to hearing how that goes. I think it's good to have a strong narrative, but it's got to be backed by word, more than just words. It's got to have deeds behind it, so exercise exercises, et cetera. So that's the the, so, the strong offense or proactive piece. The What we found, Mike, when you and I did our study together a couple years ago, the cost imposition on actions already secured on new status quo, that's where it's hardest. So there are new realities. As, I, as I've said, the, the map's been redrawn. The um, land reclaimed has been militarized. And it's very high escalation potential if one were to try try to reverse that through military operations. Um, it doesn't mean we shouldn't retain that capability and have that in mind as we think 
planning-wise about uh, how events could go in the region. But it means that we do have to focus first and foremost probably in the here and now on preventing any further such movements away from or revisions of the, the map in the region and shifts in alliances. So that's where the offense becomes important. The deterrent, you asked about the deterrent piece and the dissuasion piece, um, I think, again, demonstrating that ability, that strength of the United States, that commitment to freedom of the seas and the air. You know, we didn't talk about the ADIS piece of it, but the air freedom piece is very important. I think continuing to demonstrate that we believe and will exercise our our um, forces on those principles has a deterrent effect, and it also helps us in the event that there is an attempt to make a revision before it is, if you will, a fait accompli, if we can be ready to turn that back, we're in much better shape. When we were doing our, our study uh, together on this, it struck me that it's very hard for the U.S. and our allies, and, and in Maritime Asia, we're principally talking Japan and Australia, to impose tactical costs. Right. Um, and, and, and because Gray Zone is designed to basically, I think, demonstrate that, that in this case, China has a higher tolerance for risk than we do. And when you respond tactically, you increase the risk of escalation. And that's the whole point of Gray Zone is to sort of make us blink first. But where we have imposed costs is on the strategic level because the consequence of Chinese gray zone coercion is the U.S., Japan, Australia, trilateral security cooperation, the Quad. If the Chinese intention is to weaken U.S. alliances, to weaken U.S. influence, you could argue it's not working on a strategic and geopolitical level because our alliances are closer together. Um, you can see it clearly in Australia's white paper and Japan's midterm defense plan and defense planning guidance in the Quad itself with the U.S., Japan, Australia, India. So in a way, we're winning at the geopolitical level, but but it's hard to argue winning at the tactical level. So, you know, to quote Petraeus, where does this all end? Is there an <laughs> equilibrium that we can achieve? Are we going to be retreating constantly? Can we roll back gray zone? Where does this end? Where does, where does this go? Let me start with the hardest piece. I think you can roll back gray zone, um, but you make the most important piece here, which is where are the interests greatest for the United States and where does it make sense for the U.S. to pursue a strategy of rollback of tactical advantage. I would say we are not at that place today, mm -hmm. um, but we ought to be ready for that possibility. To your point I, on the strategic piece, I absolutely agree. I think the best thing the United States can do right now, there's a, there's a, a famous Napoleon Bonaparte quote, never interrupt your enemy when he is making a mistake. Mm -hmm. um, and the Chinese are their own their own worst enemy in this sense. They, they keep making pretty significant strategic mistakes that are helping us. So we need to be in a position where we can capitalize on that. And that's all about alliance relationships. It's all about building out economic approaches. It's helping the the Australians, for instance, in their um, sort of their their approach now to look at things like political and economic coercion and identify it for what it is to help countries think through what the cost to them might be of accepting dollars and infrastructure help from China. But also, by the way, providing an alternative. We we can't just get mad at them. We have to mm -hmm. give them something. There has to be a proactive U.S. strategy and policy. This is, you know, we are not in a new Cold War, but this is how we did well in the Cold War. We played to our strengths. Any smart strategy starts with playing to your strengths as well as um, 
you know, exploiting the weaknesses of your adversary. And China's giving us quite a few opportunities to do that. That said, I just want to go back to the beginning. The United States does need to continue to pursue uh, operational and tactical campaign level and tactical advantages against Chinese military capability in the region if it's going to underwrite all those other elements of its proactive strategy. If you could get the administration to do one thing to help advance the strategy and stop doing one thing, you know, to Napoleon's um, maxim about don't stop your enemy when you're doing, they're doing stupid things. We're doing stupid things too. What stupid thing would you stop? And what uh, thing that we're not doing would you um, encourage the administration to start doing so we can get more purchase on this problem? Um, the thing I think we should do, which I honestly don't see as any possibility, but I'll say it anyway, is join TPP-11. Here, here. Um, oh, good. I bet. Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah, good. That's good. <laughs> it's hard to think about um, this region strategically yeah. or in terms of economic interests and not be there. So it clearly relates even to gray zone cores and activities. Yep. I think the thing to stop doing is... Right now, would probably I'd focus foremost around North Korea policy for the U.S. I mean, there, mm. I think that's where there is a second order effect on U.S. Chinese relations that the United States is not demonstrating its commitment to pushing back against all these missile tests, to um, holding the Kim uh, Jong Un regime's feet to the fire, and in fact, we are you know the president is actively at times embracing him. I think if we could stop that policy and shift it more back to if i if i could use the phrase traditional us diplomacy that is about um supporting sovereignty and and um the un sanctions we already have in fact supporting if you will that global order that ultimately we need to yeah. have behind us if we're going to succeed against china um we're allowing an ability for moral equivalency to be brought between the united states and china i don't think we're morally equivalent don't get me wrong but i think we need to close that space and i think north korea policy is is a place where we could close it are you specifically worried about, so for example, the North Korean SLBM launches and other yeah. missile launches are clear violations, as Prime Minister yes. said, of Security Council resolutions, but we're giving them a pass. Is that what you're mainly that worried is about? What I mean. Yeah. So there yeah. can be a drip, drip, drip a weakening of American credibility through gray zone coercion vis a vis China, and, yeah. but it may be happening with North Korea. That's exactly right. Could it be and happening with Iran? Yes. Other parts yes. of the world, too? So, yeah. right. Obviously, as we record this, uh, we're seeing the U.S. pull out in uh, from uh, northern Syria. You know, it's the Kurds are not Japan. It's not an ally. It's not a treaty ally. But I think these are the kinds of things that if we cast our eyes back on the Obama administration and the rightful critique that it when it gave essentially Syria a pass on the chemical weapons use, um, that that cast a pretty long shadow on U.S. credibility. I think we're in a similar situation now. Yes. So it could, it could be beyond the region. It could certainly be with regard to other actors. But I'd focus first on North Korea because I suspect that's what our allies and partners in the region would look to first. Kathix, I'm glad your Navy Marine Corps family set you on a trajectory of service and uh, that that trajectory sent you through MIT and OSD and here to CSIS on our podcast. Thank you for all of that and for joining us today. Great. Thanks very much, Mike. Thanks. Thanks for listening. For more on strategy and the Asia program's work, visit the CSIS website at csis.org and click on the Asia program page.